Thank you for coming out this evening. And uh, hope you've got the notes. Um, Pastor Chris, you got notes? Okay. Everyone got notes? Uh, you'll need a pen too, because I've left some blanks there just to um, help you stay engaged, keep you awake. Okay, let's uh, begin with a word of prayer. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for uh, your uh, blessings to us this day. Thank you for watching over us, uh, keeping us safe, providing for us. Uh, your goodness and mercy has followed us uh, again uh, today. And uh, we want to thank you and praise you uh, for that. Thank you for your word and uh, we pray that we would be guided by it. Uh, Lord, in it you reveal yourself and you reveal your, your will and your plan. Uh, and uh, Lord, we pray that we might understand it and pray that we might uh, be submissive to it. Uh, Lord, uh, teach us uh, where we need to learn and uh, Lord, correct us, uh, Lord, where we need that. Whatever uh, it is, whether it be something particularly for our mind to be renewed or, or something within our hearts, uh, we know that there are, whenever we come to the word of God, uh, we come um, with needs in our hearts and uh, uh, we pray that we'd have soft and tender hearts um, upon which the seed of the word of God um, can penetrate and bring forth fruit. Uh, Lord, so this is uh, our prayer as we begin our Bible study this evening. We ask it in Jesus' name and for Jesus' sake. Amen. Okay, well, um, here we are tonight and we are studying um, <clears throat> the subject of evangelism. Uh, tonight is just an introduction uh, to that. Uh, we announced on Sunday that uh, we are tonight going to commence a series on the topic of evangelism. Pastor Brendan and I will be uh, sharing the teaching, alternating uh, each week. And as the Lord allows, um, the plan is to go for about 14 weeks. And our approach will be to study and learn about the evangelistic method of Jesus. This is our approach. I think any study of evangelism should begin with the Bible. Um, and furthermore, on this matter, I don't think there's any better place to start than with the example of Jesus, because Jesus was an evangelist. The Bible says that Jesus went about among the people preaching the gospel. And just as Jesus' life and ministry is a model for us uh, in many ways, he's a model for us in respect to holiness and respect to humility and respect to compassion, and obedience and prayer and good work, all of those things, Jesus' life and ministry is also an example for us in the matter of evangelism too. And whilst Jesus' life and ministry are recorded and explained in various places in the New Testament, uh, the Gospel of John provides an ideal place for us to focus our attention for two reasons. Number one, John wrote his gospel for the purpose of evangelism. If you open your Bible, please, to John chapter 20, getting to the, towards the end of the book, John starts with a prologue. Towards the end, he ends with an epilogue. We're at that stage now in chapter 20, 21. But at the end of chapter 20, um, <clears throat> Thomas has just seen the Lord, the risen Lord. You know, he previously didn't believe. He's seen the Lord, now he believes 
Jesus says something very, very significant. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believed. And this is important because that's the rest of us. That's the rest of the world, isn't it? People who never got to see about Jesus but have heard about him and having not seen him with our physical eyes, we believe in him because of what's recorded about him. Verse 30, it says, Many other signs, many other miracles truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these things are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. In other words, John tells us that he wrote his gospel and included certain miracles that Jesus did. Left many out, he says that. But he included certain miracles that Jesus did, certain teaching that Jesus presented for this specific purpose, writing them all down, might give something in our hands that we might know and understand that Jesus is the Christ and believe in him for salvation. John's purpose in writing his gospel is about evangelism and he talks a lot about Jesus the evangelist. But secondly... The Gospel of John is distinctive in this sense that it John covers material, as we've just alluded, he covers material, evangelistic material, which is not included in Matthew, Mark and Luke. For example, John chapter 3 records the very powerful interaction that Jesus had with a religious leader named Nicodemus, not recorded in any other Gospel. And that's followed in John chapter 4 by an extensive conversation he had with the, the woman of Samaria, not recorded in any other gospel. And these two chapters in particular are rich in instruction, revealing much of Jesus' message and his method. In addition to that, John chapter 1 provides more evangelistic instruction as it records how Jesus called his first disciples, how he made his first disciples, and how John the Baptist was also witnessing, bearing testimony, telling people about Jesus. And so John chapter 1, 3 and 4 will be the focus of our teaching series on Wednesday nights for a little bit. But before we launch into John's Gospel, I'd like to introduce the topic tonight by asking and then answering several questions. First question is, what is evangelism? What is evangelism? I'll tell you the other questions too, I'll start off the bat. Secondly, why is it important? Thirdly, why don't we do it? And then fourthly, how can we improve? So that's our introduction to the topic of evangelism under those four headings. First of all, what is evangelism? Let me, I'll just give you a simple definition. It's there in your notes. Evangelism is proclaiming the gospel. Full stop. You could leave it at there, but let's unpack it a little bit more. It is proclaiming the good news, that's what gospel means, the good news of salvation in Jesus Christ through his death, burial and resurrection. With a view of bringing about a reconciliation of the sinner and God the Father through the regenerating ministry of the Holy Spirit. That's quite comprehensive. You can see the work of Father, Son and Holy Spirit there, I think, which is a helpful uh, thing as well. Um, that's, that's not necessarily what you're telling the person, you know, as you're sharing the gospel. You're not telling them all of that. Um, but it's proclaiming the message of salvation through Jesus Christ, through his death, burial and resurrection, so that sinners can be reconciled to God. Um, the word evangelism derives from the Greek noun euangelion, which means good news, the verb euangelizomai, to announce or proclaim or bring good news. That's where the English word evangelism comes from. All right, let's move moving right along. Why is it important? Why is 
Why is evangelism important? I'm going to give you, well, there's probably many reasons, but I've, uh, I've listed five, and they're there on the, sh- the sheet. We just want to uh, um, investigate these uh, in some detail. Firstly, evangelism is important. Sharing the good news of salvation is important because it is a major th- emphasis of Scripture. It is a major emphasis of Scripture. Charles, uh, was it not... Um, Graham Scroggy, in his epic work about the Bible, he calls it the unfolding drama of redemption. That's what it, the whole Bible's about. That it's a book about salvation. Evangelism, therefore, is a major emphasis in Scripture. Um, God Himself desires it. God Himself desires it, and we can see this in several ways. First of all, by the revelation of His name. Okay, even his name okay, speaks about evangelism. Repeatedly throughout the Old Testament, God calls himself Savior. He says, I am the Savior. A um, couple of examples. You'll find this frequent in the book of Isaiah especially. Uh, I've given you references there, but I'll just put a couple on the screen. Isaiah 43 verse 3. For I am the Lord thy God, the Holy One of Israel, thy Savior. 43 verse 11, I, even I, am the Lord, and beside me there is no Saviour. Here's another one, Isaiah 45, 21, Tell ye, and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it, the, uh, told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Saviour. There is none beside me. The same title is given to the Lord in the New Testament. Uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 47. Mary says, My spirit hath rejoiced in God my Saviour. Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 that he is an apostle. Sorry, 1 Timothy 1 tells us he's an apostle of Jesus Christ by the commandment of God our Saviour and the Lord Jesus Christ, which is our hope. 1 Timothy 4.10. For therefore we both labour and suffer reproach because we trust in the living God who who is the saviour of all men, especially those that believe. Uh, Jude 25, oops, to the only wise God our saviour, be glory and majesty, dominion and power both now and ever. Amen. So we see it very, very simply. By the revelation of God's name, he is a saviour. But we also see it in the desire of his heart, the desire of God's heart. Here's an example, Ezekiel 33, verse 11. Okay, you, can, you, can, you can almost hear God pleading through the prophet Ezekiel. He tells Ezekiel, say unto them, this is what he say, As I live, saith the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn ye, turn ye from your evil ways, for why will ye die, O house of Israel? It's God's pleading, okay? God's heart for the salvation of people. Um, in the New Testament as well, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 4. We'll have all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Here's another one. Um, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, but not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Why doesn't God judge people on the spot? You know, some people do wicked, wicked things, terrible things. And we think, why doesn't God just judge them on the spot? And the reason is God's long-suffering. Okay? He doesn't want that person to perish. He doesn't want 
that person to be judged for their sin. He wants that person to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And so therefore, he defers judgment. That's his heart. We see it in his name. We see it in his heart. We see it in the act of sending his son. Jesus Christ came into the world not so that God might love us, but because God loved us and desires our salvation. 1 John chapter 4, verse 14. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Saviour of the world. The world needed saving. And in love, God sent his Son to save the world. John chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. All right, furthermore, Christ revealed it. Not only does God the Father desire it, Christ has revealed it. That is, evangelism is important. Uh, he, he reveals it by his own example. For three and a half years, three and a half, half years of public ministry, uh, we have details recorded of that. Not much up until that point in time, not much. But we know he had about three and a half years of public ministry and he had a lot of things to do. A lot of things to do. And it's very interesting to note that at no stage did he neglect personal ministry, personal evangelism. He came to save the world as only he could. But he had conversations frequently, often, always talking with people about the need for salvation. He engaged in conversations. And I've given you scripture references there. Uh, we know he preached in the synagogue. Uh, we have a couple of those um, sermons, so to speak, that Jesus preached. The Sermon on the Mount. Okay? But, but by and large, Jesus' evangelistic words were personal conversations or, or conversations just in general public. He engaged in personal conversations. Secondly, he called each of his disciples individually. He spoke to them individually. He called each... Each of them individually. There's, there's personal conversations going on there. The great truths of salvation and cleansing and forgiveness and new birth and satisfaction. Jesus spoke about all these things and he spoke about them to people in personal conversations. Jesus revealed it also by his own command to and commission of his disciples. He commanded them. Go and preach the gospel to every creature. He gave them this great commission. Go and preach the gospel. I've given you those great commission references there. Okay. Notice all the alls in Matthew 28, 19 and 20. Jesus came in and spoke on the saying, All power is given unto me. Okay. All authority. Okay. Every, he, he can command anything about anyone because all authority belongs to him. Okay? He's about to make a significant announcement, but he prefaces and says, I have the authority to say this and require this. All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. And on the basis of that, he says, go ye therefore and teach all nations. Okay? All power. Okay? All nations. That, that's our parish, so to speak, if I use that word. That's as far as we go with the gospel baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things. Okay, that's the program. 
He's given us the power. He's told us what the parish is. This is the program. Teach them everything I've told you. And uh, that's going to be a difficult job. So therefore, be encouraged because, lo, I'm with you always. All, all days. Okay? All days. You have authority. Indeed, you are commissioned, you are commanded to go everywhere preaching everything about me to everyone and I'll be with you all the time. This is, this is an epic thing. This is the climax. This is the last thing he does before he ascends to heaven. This is the job he's given us to do. Mark chapter 1 verse 17. Jesus said unto them, Come, af- come ye after me and I'll make you to become fishers of men. Three words to emphasize there. Come. Okay? That's an invitation. This is, this is a personal conversation. Come. There's an invitation there. Come, come after me. Okay? That, that is an imperative. And come after me. Okay? So what do, what do we, we have? We have invitation. And we have obligation. And we have contemplation. Come after me. And I will, what did he say, make you fishers of men. That's our occupation. And the concept there of becoming fishers of men, okay, he, you know, they, were, they, were, they were fishermen and so he talks in that language. But the, but the concept there is not, you know, not, not catching them dead so you can eat them. Okay? The concept is catching them alive. That's the concept. Catching them alive, which is a very interesting concept because we find a similar thing in 2 Timothy 2 verse 26. Paul says that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Satan also wants to catch people alive, okay, for his purposes. And the Lord Jesus commissioned us to catch people alive for his purposes. And so there is this struggle, okay, for the lives of men. Uh, we are to win them to the Lord because the devil wants to win them to himself. There's, there's the battle right there. In Luke chapter 8, verse 39, and... Mark chapter 5, verse 19, two references there, both telling the story about the madman of Gadara. How Jesus delivered him, he wanted to follow Jesus, said, no, I want you to stay and do something. Chapter 8, Luke 8, 39, return unto thine own house and show how great things the Lord had done for thee. And he went his way and published throughout the whole city how great things Jesus had done for him. Mark's account of that says, verse five, chapter 5, verse 9, And how be it, Jesus suffered him not, but said unto him, Go home and to thy friends, and tell how great things the Lord hath done for thee, and hath had compassion on thee. Go home and show by your life. Go home and tell with your lips. Okay? Show and tell. My wife teaches preschool. Um, and we, I know about show and tell. Okay? This, this, is, this is what Christians do. We, we show people what the Lord has done in our life. We tell people. And through our life and through our lips. Someone said that uh, it is the double testimony of life and lips that convinces men and confounds demons. We also have Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where Jesus said to his disciples, you know, you are witnesses unto me. Bear testimony. What you've seen, what you've heard, what you know. Talk to other people about it. Tell other people about it. This is what Jesus encouraged. He encouraged us to be evangelists. Um, Thirdly, the early church practiced it. The early church practiced evangelism. I've given you a stack of verses there, uh, which show Christians in the early church 
Again, not so much preaching in church gatherings, although that did happen, but just general conversation, Christians talking with other people. Situation comes up, there's a crowd around. They address the crowd, they speak to the situation, they tell about Jesus. At Pentecost, Acts chapter 2 verse 4 says that they all spake, all of them, 120 in the upper, in the upper room, and they all spoke, bearing witness, bearing testimony. And the end result of all of that was that 3,000 were saved. And as I said, most of those references that I've given you there in the book of Acts are just general conversations. People talking about Jesus, uh, just gossiping the gospel. That's how it's often been referred to. And uh, as people did that, we have this reference in Acts chapter 9 verse 20, which says, So mightily grew the word of God and prevailed. As people went everywhere just sharing the gospel. Um, of the 120 times in the New Testament the word preach is used, in only six instances does it mean a formal discourse. The rest of the time is just talking about people preaching in general conversation. Here's a fourth reason why evangelism is important, is because the church today cannot exist without it. If the church, if a local church does not go, it will be gone. This is how we... We reproduce after our kind. A local church that loses its evangelistic fervour and settles into self-complacency as a, even as a headquarters for truth will soon cease to exist. Think about the seven churches of Revelation. Well, we're going to get to those in the next couple of weeks. Think about the seven churches of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 and the warnings that Christ gave them as they stalled in the task that he'd given them. Think about the church at Jerusalem. Jesus told the disciples to bear witness of him in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and under the uttermost parts of the earth. But you read the book of Acts, they did not go beyond their own borders. And so what happened? God allowed them to be persecuted severely, so much so they had to flee for their lives. They were scattered, and guess what? They went everywhere preaching the gospel. They should have gone voluntarily. And uh, what it doesn't tell us, it doesn't give any other interpretation, other it just gives us a narrative, tells us what happened. But as we continue reading, we, we find what happens is that uh, people went as far as Antioch and the church was planted at Antioch. And if you follow the, 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 the flow of the book of, of Acts, Jerusalem, being the mother church, should have been the center for world missions, but it, but it wasn't. It became Antioch, the church at Antioch, had the privilege of being the center for world missions. Because if they were so slow in getting to it, God gave that privilege to someone else. In the book of Judges, chapter 5, God has some very stern words to say against the people of Meroz, M-E-R-O-Z, not because of anything that they did wrong, but because of a right thing that they neglected to do. And that is, instead of getting involved and joining their brethren in striving together in a common cause against the enemy, they didn't do that. They chose not to do that. And as I said, God has some very, very stern, worn words to say to them. 
Someone who said that the Christian who gives nothing to the Lord and does nothing for the Lord is good for nothing. And may the Lord deliver us from ever being good for nothing Christians. Now all of that leads up to our second point, major point. Uh, have I missed some? I th oh yeah, I told you about that. Solemn, it's a solemn responsibility of every believer. Okay? It is a solemn evangelism is a solemn responsibility of every believer. Every Christian should read and carefully consider, and probably on our knees, alone with God. Ezekiel 33 verses 1 to 6. I've put the reference there. I haven't put the verses there. But Ezekiel 33, 1 to 6 is all about the watchman who fails to sound the alarm. Danger's coming. We can see it. We don't tell people about the danger that they're in. And God says, because that's the case, I will require the blood of those who perish from on your hands. It'll be on your hands. It's a very solemn responsibility to be a watchman and fail to do our job. Proverbs 24, verses 11 and 12. If thou forbear to deliver them that are drawn unto death, and those that are, and those that are ready to be slain, if thou sayest, Behold, we knew it not, doth not he that pondereth the heart consider it? And he that keepeth thy soul, doth not he know it? And shall not he render to every man according to his works? James 5, 9 and 20, Brethren, if any of you do err from the truth, and one convert him, let him know that he which converteth a sinner from the error of his way shall save a soul from death and shall hide a multitude of sins. That's a responsibility, but also, it's also a great privilege, isn't it, when you think about it? 1 Corinthians 9 tells us today is the day of salvation. We don't know about tomorrow. And looking at a different way, today is the day when we can announce salvation. We don't know what will be for us tomorrow. And should we need any more convincing after reading these solemn truths... Let me just uh, put before you, oh, there's a quote on your notes. Um, it's not on the screen, but it's on your notes. Quote by T.C. Horton. He reminds, soul winning is a divine art. We're not born soul winners, but made. Some Christians seem to think that only a few believers are called to this work and that the obligation is not universal, that it may or may not be done as we choose. This is false, unscriptural and illogical. It is committed to every believer. All may become soul winners if they give themselves to it. And that's one of the reasons why we're here tonight and uh, for the next 14 weeks looking at these things. Dr. Nettleton, who's a great evangelist and soul winner, once he put, in, put to himself this question. He said, what shall I wish I had done with my life a thousand years from now? And he answered his own question by devoting the rest of his life to winning people for Christ. There is a gospel tract, I believe it's still in circulation, it's called Suppose. And it asks this question, suppose that you were offered $1,000 for every soul that you earnestly sought to win for Christ. 
Would you, for this reward, seek to win more souls for Christ than you are doing right now? If so, your love of money is greater than your love for Christ or for your fellow man. It's said that Rome conquered the world with a short sword. That short sword enabled him to get close to his enemy. Modern warfare, by contrast, we're told, takes a, a ton of steel to kill a person and uh, maybe a ton of sermons to convert one soul. Yet not necessarily so with the short sword of personal evangelism where we speak directly to individuals. The story is told of Judge Miggins who in his youth had been an infidel in Philadelphia. He left the city and was converted to Christ. Sometime after his conversion, he revisited Philadelphia and stayed in the home of one of his former infidel friends. After three days in his home, his friend said, George, I hear you're a Christian. Yes, was his reply. Well, George, do you believe in God? Yes. And in hell? And in the impenitent going there for all eternity? Yes, he said. His friend said, well, does Christianity dry up all the milk of humanity in one's body as it has with yours? What do you mean? His friend said, well, you've lived three days under my roof, knowing and believing this, and you've not put your hand on my shoulder or said one word to save me. I wonder how many of us are in the same boat as Judge Miggins. Thirdly, God described those who win souls as being wise. God describes those who win souls as being wise. Proverbs 11 verse 30. The fruit of the righteous is a tree of life, and he that winneth souls is wise. What does it mean to win? Joseph Kemp, Hebrew scholar, points out what the word win means, or what context this word win was also found in. He tells us it was a... It was used in a military context, a military term. To win a city, this Hebrew word, meant to lay, lay siege to it and take it. Not easy work. It requires skill, patience, bravery, endurance. And if you read John Bunyan's The Holy War, I think you'll appreciate the fact that to capture the city of Mansoul is indeed a great feat of arms. Not only was it a military term, it was also a, an occupational term. To win or to take, a soul suggests, perhaps a fisherman, who in the face of all kinds of weather and all kinds of risks, applies himself to the task of pitting his skill against the fish in order to capture that fish, take that fish. Skill is required, sacrifice is required. There's also a matrimonial term, to win a bride by captivating her affections. Read Genesis 24 and see how I, uh, Abraham's servant won a bride for Isaac. When a young man begins to date a young lady with the object of winning her as his bride, how does he go about it? 
He pays her attention. He, he talks to her. He walks with her. He calls on her. He sends her presence. He sacrifices his own ease and self-interest in order to win hers. Finally, he makes a proposition of marriage to which she answers yes and he's won himself a bride. Now apply all of that to soul winning and how we might hope to win people to Christ. And Solomon tells us this is an example of true wisdom. Samuel Chadwick says, and I quote, It is a noble work. There is nothing higher. Angels covet it. It's a lasting work, for its results are seen in eternity. It is a soul-profiting work, for it makes for spiritual success, happiness, and freshness. Fourthly, the fact of eternity argues for the importance of evangelism. The fact of eternity Matthew chapter 13 verses 41 to 43. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father who has ears to hear, let him hear. Eternity in hell or eternity in heaven. What do we say about eternity? No human language adequately describes it or mind can conceive of it. A poet, a poem is tried. It's in your notes. Count the gold and silver blossoms. Spring has scattered o'er the lea. Count the softly winding ripples sparking o'er the summer sea. Count the lightly flickering shadows in the autumn forest glade. Count the falling feathery snowflakes Ice gems in by winter made. Count the myriad blades that glitter early in the morning dew. Count the desert strand that stretches under noontime vault of hue. Count the notes the birds warble in the evening's fading light. Count the stars that gleam and twinkle o'er the firmament by night. When thy counting all is done, <coughs> scarce eternity's begun. Here a pause. Where wilt thou be during thy eternity? Of course, Arthur Stace had some sense of that as he just wrote that one word. The fact of eternity and the shortness of time. The shortness of time. John chapter... 9 verse 4, Jesus said, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night cometh when no man can work. 2 Corinthians 6 verse 1 and 2, We then as workers together with him beseech you also that you receive not the grace of God in vain, for he saith, I have heard thee in a time accepted, in the day of salvation have I succored thee. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. We don't know what tomorrow will bring forth. Paul tells us to preach the word, be instant, in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and doctrine. For the time will come when they'll not endure sound doctrine. But after their own lust shall they heap to themselves teachers having itching ears. 
there is a uh, there is an opportunity to preach the gospel. It won't always be there. Okay, um, you, you might share the gospel with with uh, you know ten people and two of them listen to you. Okay, well the time's coming. It's, it's getting worse and worse than that. You share the gospel with a hundred people, only one person listens to you. Take the opportunity that's before us today. Romans 13, 11 and 12. And that knowing the time, that is now high time to awake out of sleep. For now is your salvation nearer than we believed. The night is far spent, the day is at hand. Let us therefore cast off the works of darkness. Let us put on the armour of light. Life's little day will soon draw to a close. And the opportunity to serve the Lord will be gone forever. There's a French philosopher who said, he who values his life must value his time. For time is the stuff out of which life is made. F.W. Borum said, just as space is a tabloid of infinity, so time is a tabloid of eternity. David Brainard, missionary to the American Indians, died at age 36. That's what he wrote in his diary. I want to wear myself out in the service of his glory. I care not how or where I live or what hardship I go through, but that I might gain souls for Christ. Someone has said that Paul's concern for the lost was produced by a threefold conviction. One of the great verity we all must face, that is the judgment of God. Every one of us shall give an account of himself to God. The great verity we all must face. Secondly, the great experience which we must all go through. That is the resurrection, either to life or to condemnation. And the great destiny to which all men are moving, that is eternity. And the father who neglects to plough or sow his fields in the spring must face the prospect of empty barns later on. Well, how can we get a concern for souls? How can we learn to rightly value the opportunities that we have? I think something needs to happen in our hearts. I think that's where it's got to... You don't, get a, you don't do what David Brainard did without having a heart like David Brainard. I think something deep has to happen in our heart. I think, I think, I think the truth of the word of God has to come to us in, the, in, in God's presence. Let's prayerfully ponder or ponder prayerfully what is involved in words which we find in verses like this. John chapter 3 verse 18 talks about people being condemned already. Think about that. Let's think about what that must be like. Or 1 John chapter 5 verse 12. People who have not life, they have not life. 2 Corinthians 4 verse 3. If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost, in whom the God of this world hath blinded the minds of them which believe not. They're lost. They don't know it, but they're lost. What about 1 Corinthians 1 verse 18? Perish. This is what will become of those who aren't reached with the gospel. 
Let me give you a sixth thing to show us why evangelism is important. is because God has greatly honoured personal evangelism. He's greatly honoured personal evangelism. Think about Andrew. Picture of a personal evangelist. As such, he's mentioned three times in the scriptures and each time they're describing bringing someone to Christ. Today, there is such a thing as, as highly orchestrated mass evangelism, you know, great big events, huge resources being put into these massive events, high pressure, manufacturing thousands of professions. And yet there's a great need for dedicated Christians who will give themselves to personal evangelism. One soul genuinely saved is better than 10,000 who make false professions. And so let's go for the quality and let God take care of the quantity. Turnbull, who was a great soul winner and the author of the book, Taking Men Alive, said, I can talk to a multitude and not see any moved, but I can talk to a multitude of individuals in the course of time and I can get a multitude of results. Interestingly, D.L. Moody, who preached to a lot of people, said this, my sermon is but the preliminary to the individual work in the inquiry room. It's not that we diminish preaching in any way. It's God's ordained means. But not everyone is able to preach, and yet everyone is obligated to share the gospel. And everyone is obligated to converse with people about the gospel. And this is what Moody was saying. He preaches, he gets people to respond, and then he deals with them personally. They either heal someone else in the inquiry room. The Great Commission is not, come ye from all the world and hear the gospel preached from our platform. There's a place for evangelistic meetings in church, churches. We see that in 1 Corinthians 14. Church service going on, someone unsaved comes in and meets God there. It's a wonderful thing. But that's not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. There's a vast difference between being evangelical and being evangelistic. The evangelical may be sound doctrinally and be sound asleep. The evangelical may serve truth on ice but the evangelist gives truth on fire and brethren let us not be like the Christian who on his deathbed confessed I'm saved and I'm going to heaven but I'm going empty handed without having won anyone for Christ my saviour it's been calculated that if a hundred believers each brought one soul to Christ each year and each soul, one in turn, brought another to Christ each year. In 25 years, over a billion and a half souls will be saved. As it is now, the average conversion is about four Christians a year for every 100 Christians. Which is uh, not real good. And probably those numbers are inflated because of things going on in India. There's a proverb, that's, a proverb that says you can count the acorns on a tree. 
but you cannot count the number of oak trees in an acorn, providing, of course, that the acorn's willing to die to self. All right, let's consider our third major heading here. Why don't we evangelise? Let me give you some common excuses. Number one, I don't know their language, which is an issue for some people who are foreigners in a strange land. And uh, their language is not the language of the people around about them. And so they have great difficulty in sharing the gospel. That, we can understand that. There's a challenge there. But it's a challenge to be got around somehow. Talk to Brother Jeff. He'll get you some tracks in that language. There are some places in the world where evangelism is illegal. And if some people are threatened with going to jail or worse for evangelizing, we can understand why they'd keep quiet. But I tell you what, if there's a country where evangelism is illegal, that's a certainly a country that needs the gospel. But certainly we can understand that would be an excuse for some. Thirdly, evangelism could cause problems at work. Imagine a situation where you're there at work and you start talking to someone at work, one of your work colleagues, about the gospel, engaging them in conversation while you should be working. Okay? And you see the, the, the challenge that's there. Um, if, uh, if the person is interested and the, the conversation continues, then it continues while you're not working, you're there to do work. And uh, so there's a, there's a bit of a challenge there as well. And some people say, well, okay, well, I'm here to work and I'm here not to, uh, talk about, to say anything about Christ. And hence there's, a, there's no witnessing just because of that challenge. Number four, other things seem more urgent. And we, there is the tyranny of the urgent. We've got to get the children home to bed. We've got to get to the shop before it closes. Uh, we've got to get the extra, we have to have the second job. Okay? You know what my mortgage is doing at the moment. Um, long hours, long commutes, all the responsibilities, and there just doesn't seem any time. Number five, I don't know non-Christians. There are many Christians like that. Who they're at, The only circle of people that they really communicate with the Christians and it's great to have Christian community we need that but the problem is that when we only have Christian friends and no other friends and contacts we don't have anyone to evangelize or people that need evangelizing and we're not there number six it's no use they won't listen and that sort of uh, lack of faith mindset is very prevalent. And we seem to have forgotten that we ourselves got saved by the gospel. And we seem to have forgotten that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. And we seem to have forgotten that it's not our job to save people, it's God's job to save people. It's our job just to share the gospel and keep sharing the gospel. And if they don't listen, keep sharing the gospel. I have, um, there is, I, I pulled a book off my shelf yesterday. It's called uh, Sharing the Gospel Without Fear. 
and it was written by a fellow whose name I've forgotten, but uh, he um, previously was, for many years, uh, was a, uh, a very, very wealthy head of companies and company, company and companies with mafia connections and owned a, a brothel, a biggest brothel in some city, and uh, had a lot of money, had absolutely everything, um, and um, met some Christians who started witnessing to him, and he um, just ridiculed them, and every Christian he met, he ridiculed them, and he even went to church and ridiculed Christians. He knew there was something in his life, and Christians tried to witness to him, and he ridiculed them, and eventually he got saved. And he said that he humiliated some Christians. He said, but, <clears throat> the thing is, and, 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 and what they said didn't necessarily have any great impact upon me at the time. He says, but I, I, remember, exact, I remember everything they said. I remember every single one of them. And, 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 and they succeeded because their job was to share the gospel, and they did that. And here he is saved, uh, remarkably saved, writing a book about how to witness without fear. Keep sharing the gospel. That's our job, whether they listen or not. Keep sharing the gospel. Number seven. Uh, we think it's not my responsibility. That's why we pay the pastor. That's his job. Well, yes, the pastor's job is to be an evangelist, but so is yours, okay? all of us. Uh, one of the pastor's jobs is to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry and to help you share the gospel, um, even as we learn better how to share the gospel. Um, I don't know what to say. Uh, it's a common excuse. I don't know what to say, so therefore we say nothing. Well, hopefully, uh, well, let me say this. <clears throat> you, you, you have a testimony, you can say your testimony. You can share your testimony. Simple as that. Uh, if you can't, don't feel you can very well articulate the gospel. Just tell people how you got saved, what God has done in your life. This is a good place to start. And I, you probably know more about what to say than you realise. But hopefully the, the next couple of months will help us with that. Uh, number, no, number nine, I am afraid. I think that's probably one of the most common ones for us. And for that reason, that guy wrote that book, you know, How to Share Your, share your Faith Without Fear, How to Share the Gospel Without Fear. That's the main one for us. And the other one for us, which is a little bit uh, embarrassing to admit, but we don't really care. We don't really care. Uh, we're, we're safe. We're secure in our salvation, love the Lord, love the gospel. It's a treasure to us um, and we're content with that. We don't really care about others. Certainly not enough. Some of us. Well, well, how can we improve? How can we improve? Well, we can improve by gathering together on Wednesday nights, studying God's word together and praying that the Lord would teach us. Uh, next week we're going to start in... Uh, John chapter 1, and for several weeks we'll be in John chapter 1, where, we'll, where, we will, where we will consider the witness of John the Baptist and the calling of the first disciples. And in John chapter 1, we're going to learn some biblical principles of evangelism. Then after that, we're going to move into John chapter 3 and study Jesus' witness to Nicodemus. Jesus interacted with, with this very religious man who is typical of many religious people today. And Jesus systematically presented a theology of the gospel. 
And the importance of this cannot be overstated because we have to, we have to be a faithful gospel witness and we have to be accurate in our presentation of the gospel. We have, to, we have to understand the necessity of the new birth and where it comes from. We have to understand the love of God for the world. We have to understand about the sacrifice of Christ on the cross as an evidence of God's love for the world whom he wants to save. We have to understand, we have to help people to understand, we have to understand ourselves that receiving the gift of salvation requires a response of faith. Whosoever believeth in him, that's a major factor, it requires a response of faith. And that salvation is a deliverance from eternal condemnation unto eternal life. And understanding these things is essential to clearly presenting the gospel. If you don't know what to say, Okay, Jesus will teach us as we study John chapter 3. And then we move into John chapter 4, where we see Jesus witness to a Samaritan woman who is very unlike Nicodemus, and yet she also is very typical of many people. And as we study John chapter 4, we will notice Jesus' practice of evangelism in witnessing to an individual. Jesus very, very... He, he, he encounters barriers. This woman's putting up barriers all the time. And Jesus is dealing with those barriers and making a personal connection with her. And he presents the gospel to her in a way which intersects with her understanding of her need. And what we do is what we'll see as we study John chapter 4 is we will see the, the effect of the gospel of Jesus' witness to this woman. And she comes to a position of belief in Christ and she is so convinced that Jesus is her saviour that she goes and tells everyone else straight away. She starts sharing the gospel with others. And if we understand that our mission is to make disciple makers, to evangelise others so they in turn may become evangelists, then uh, John chapter 4 will be of particular interest to, to us as well. So this is uh, where we're heading. Uh, should the Lord allow us and help us um, over the next uh, 13 more weeks? as we consider John chapters 1, 3, and 4, and how we might improve um, in this matter of evangelism. All right, let's conclude in prayer. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you've given us your word. Uh, thank you for revealing uh, to us in the scriptures um, your own concern about this matter of the salvation of souls. Uh, Lord, thank you that uh, uh, you desire it and, uh, Lord, you sent your son to achieve it. Uh, you will help us to share that uh, life-saving message with others. Lord, you put your Holy Spirit within us. You put the word of God before us. Thank you for the gospel of John. Thank you for the example of Jesus. And, uh, Lord, I do pray that you might uh, help us to benefit greatly. Uh, Lord, we think about all those excuses. Maybe some of them are excuses that we've used. Um, Lord, I pray that you would deal with our hearts, deal with our hearts, uh, so that, uh, Lord, we cannot but speak the things that we've seen and heard and whatever obstacles and barriers that are there, I pray that we would find a way. Uh, because we believe this is so important, that the salvation of souls is so important, that, uh, Lord, you'd help us to find ways and means whereby uh, we can share the gospel with others. Thank you that salvation is of the Lord, uh, but we thank you for the 
the part that we can play in uh, being not just the recipients of the gospel, but stewards of the gospel as well. Uh, Lord, help us to, uh, to so treasure it, to think it's so valuable that uh, we can't but uh, share the riches of Christ with others. Uh, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.